You're listening to CFRC 101.9 FM, an Apple a Day Public Health Inquiry Podcast, or PHIP for short. The aim of this podcast is to show that public health is more than infectious diseases and health guidelines. Throughout the series, we'll get to know some of the people behind public health. In each episode, we invite a public health professional to share their career journey and experiences. Stay tuned to the end of each episode as we also include a segment on some of the best places in Kingston to promote a greater sense of community and we play a song recommended by our guest. My name is Tiffany Harianto, and I'm a Master of Public Health candidate at Queen's University. I graduated from the Bachelor of Health Sciences Honors Program at McMaster University, where my honors project included making research on music and mental resilience more accessible to the public. As someone with a musical background, it's important to me to raise awareness on how we can apply our interests and passions to promote health for everyone. I'm also the program intern of the Beyond Words program at Union Gallery, which provides a safe space for students and members of the Cataraqui Kingston community to use art and conversation to promote wellness. I'm excited to co-host the podcast in Apple a Day. Through this podcast, I hope listeners will gain a deeper understanding and appreciation of public health. And I am Peyton Bailey. Like Tiffany, I am a student of Queen's University's Master of Public Health program. I have an academic background in physiology and microbiology, while personal interests include infection prevention, youth engagement in public policy, and the use of mass media to facilitate health education. I am delighted to work alongside Tiffany on this podcast and to learn more about the diverse areas of study and implications under the realm of public health science. I consider this podcast an opportunity for listeners of all backgrounds to gain a new perspective of health and how it intersects with various aspects of our society. This is episode two on epidemiology. In this episode, we will delve into the fascinating and expanding field of epidemiology, which broadly refers to the distribution and determinants of disease. Joining us today to provide insight into this exciting topic is Dr. Maria Ospina, a clinical epidemiologist specializing in maternal and perinatal health. Dr. Ospina is a former Canada Research Chair in Life Course, Social Environments, and Health. She was a visiting fellow in Systematic Reviews in the Ibero-American Cochrane Centre in Barcelona and completed a Master of Science in Clinical Epidemiology and PhD in Public Health Sciences at the University of Alberta. Thereafter, she served as an adjunct professor with the Department of Medicine and the School of Public Health. Dr. Espina is currently an associate professor in the Department of Public Health Sciences here at Queen's University and a member of a Women and Children's Health Research Institute. So, Dr. Espina, having provided a bit of a brief overview Mm -hmm. of your academic history, uh, would you like to provide a bit of an introduction um, of yourself to okay. our audience? Perfect. So, um, again, thank you for this invitation. Uh, this is a fantastic opportunity to get to know a little bit more about faculty and other people working in public health and epidemiology in our community. Um, I was born in Colombia. I have been uh, living in Canada for the last 22 years mainly in Alberta, back in Edmonton. So that feels a little bit as my second home in Canada. Um, 
I uh, am also a, a psychologist, a clinical psychologist by training. And I, I always say that was my previous life back in Colombia. I used to practice as a psychologist. Uh, when I moved to Canada, I decided to go through the research and, and teaching stream. And, and here I am. Um, on a personal level, I, I like playing guitar. I, I like playing squash. Um, I enjoy spending time with my dog, and probably I will tell you more about him later. But that's a little bit of me in a, in a nutshell. That's certainly a very interesting career path as well. Could you share what motivated you to go from psychology to research when you moved to Canada? Yes. So I, when I was, and, and actually before coming to Canada, I... I lived in Brazil uh, for a few years, um, and when I was in Brazil, I started to get, uh, you know, into doing some education around social sciences and anthropology. Uh, so I think that started to, you know, motivate me a little bit to get to know more about research. But of course, I had no idea about research. I was, I have to say, I graduated very young from. Um, my university uh, so I was a little bit lost I didn't know what I wanted to do so I went to Brazil for a couple of years to get to you know um, do a little bit of uh, studies um, after graduation undergrad and then uh, I came back to to Colombia and I I, as I was working as a, as a psychologist I met this guy who is a psychiatrist and he trained actually in Canada in McMaster on clinical epidemiology. And uh, the university where I was affiliated with, they started a department of clinical epidemiology. And then I, I got kind of interested in knowing what they were doing and issues about measurement and surveys and uh, all this um, fascinating uh, world of uh, giving answers to our why, why this, why that, why these relationships, and um, how different exposures and factors have strong influence on health, that health is not something that only happens, you know, in our bodies internally, but there are some, you know, um, exposures, external exposures, and individual, and also at the community level that have an impact on 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 physical health, on mental health, on, on different aspects of health. So I think I, I kind of started to get more and more interested from that angle. And then uh, when I decided to move to Canada because of love and, and pursue my degree in, in, in epidemiology. So that was a little bit of a path. I have to say a little bit unplanned, uh, but here I am. <laughs> We're glad you're here as well. Getting on to that topic of uh, epidemiology, and you brought up your experience moving to Alberta, deciding to pursue graduate studies. I think a lot of our listeners might also be pursuing a Master of Science mm -hmm. degree here at Queen's or elsewhere. Mm -hmm. So I was wondering if you could provide us a little more detail to your master's thesis mm -hmm. and what maybe got you interested in that particular project. Okay. So I have to declare that my path to you know, becoming a researcher, uh, it wasn't a lineal path. Uh, and this is probably that some people that might be listening to the po 
this podcast might identify with. Like you get into one discipline and then you get very excited, but you don't know what's going to be the next step. And I have to say I was in that boat. So when I, it was very serendipity that I met my my supervisor for, for my uh, master's thesis because we both shared an interest in systematic reviews and as you might know, I was a fellow in the Ever-American Cochrane Center. Happy to tell you a little bit more about that experience later. But because of our um, mutual uh, interest in evidence-based and uh, knowledge synthesis, uh, and he was an expert into, within the Cochrane collaboration on systematic reviews and, and evidence-based uh, uh, medicine, I pursue my master's thesis with him. And uh, the topic of my thesis was very, very methodologically oriented, very dry, if you want to call it that way, because it was an evaluation of evidence-based emergency medicine and looking at how a publication bias uh, affects what we know the evidence in emergency medicine and emergency health. So at the end of the day, our results show that 41% of the research that is is produced in the topic of emergency medicine never see the light of the sun. It kind of gets into a drawer for many, many reasons. Um, So... I think that was an important call for people working in emergency medicine to get their act together and try to get their evidence uh, published. So it has a, 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 a better impact uh, in terms of you know improving um, emergency department care. So that was a little bit of, of that. After I finished my master, I had no idea what I was going to do, had no clue. So I said, okay, maybe I'm going to work a little bit. So I worked, I started working as a, as a research assistant in a center that was called Evidence-Based Practice Center. At that time, it, it was the only evidence-based practice center in Canada. This was uh, something funded by a, a U.S.-based government agency to produce evidence-based reports to support healthcare decisions. So I work uh, for a couple of years as a project coordinator, and I'm like, okay, I like this. I really do like research. Uh, so then I decided to move forward with, with my PhD. But I have to say all these decisions were uh, a little bit unplanned, if you want to call it that way. Um, and then I got into my PhD research, which was a topic that was very different from what my um, master's dissertation was. That's how my career started. It sounds like your research covered a lot of fascinating topics too. That's excellent. And Dr. Espina, in addition to your role as a researcher, you are of course an educator as well. Yes. And so I wonder what role do you think you play in shaping the next generation of researchers and what sort of major lessons do you want uh, your students to carry um, carry out from mm-hmm. epidemiology? Yeah, I uh, I have to say I I love teaching. Uh, it's uh, it's so so rewarding to feel that you are uh, uplifting somebody in their education path. If they go to research, that's fantastic. If they don't go to research, 
that's fantastic too. Everybody has their own path. Um, I also believe that we need to demythify a little bit that only the people who go to a research stream should know about research. I would say we all should know about research because we use research in our everyday lives. We use research if we work with government. We, as public health officers, um, you are a user of research evidence. And of course, as um, you know, if you go into the research stream, you are producing research. So I, I want to emphasize this just to say that from my point of view as an educator, all my trainees from the different streams in, in our department are important um, for me as an educator. Uh, when I um, help to train um, you know, people in research, I, I really like to work in a group format, and that's my way of doing this work, because I believe when you do research, you don't do research by yourself. You do research on a team. So having a team uh, to conduct research, to learn about how you do research, to me is the best uh, environment that you can have, and this is what I have done in the past, and this is what I would like to do here and continue that path at, at Queen's. I, I like to be hands-on on the work. Um, I have to say that this, you know, this way to, to supervise by leading by example is because I think trainees not only learn uh, concepts. Uh, that's easy to go to YouTube and learn how to run a regression analysis or how you do a bunch of things. That's, you know, something that you can acquire in many, many ways. But mentorship is something that requires a relationship with somebody getting to learn not only kind of contents and, and skills on how to do this and how to do that, but also how you can remain being a, a good person in, in the work that you do uh, and how you can grow as a person. These are certainly really important lessons for all of us to keep in mind as well. And Dr. Ospina, would you like to share the work that you're currently doing here at Queen's University? Yes. So um, I, so as you know, I started my position in, in July uh, 1st. So I have to say I have done a lot of teaching this term. Um, and uh, changing institutions can be a little bit challenging because um, you start lag behind a little bit on what type of research you were doing and then you need to catch up on, you know, what are the next steps. But um, I can tell you probably a little bit about what is my program of research and what kind of work I am currently doing. So I, uh, in 2016, I started um, my own lab, which is a, a dry lab because I don't work with mice. I work with data. The name of my lab is Demetra. It stands for Developmental, Maternal, and Perinatal Epidemiology and Translational Research. So this is a, a multidisciplinary research program that I started to understand why and how the first thousand days of human life impact future health. Um, so my research um, is aligned uh, with this theme. 
Uh, and just incidentally, Demeter is also the name of the uh, goddess Greek of fertility and maternity and uh, nurturing. So I, I found it was an appropriate uh, acronym for the type of work that I do. So in that line, I do research in maternal and prenatal health. And uh, I am interested in the angle of how health inequities start early in life and then perpetuate over time. I think this is a very, very important problem in, in our society. Uh, so I have the fortune to partner with uh, the Métis Nation in Alberta uh, to do research in this topic about how uh, perinatal health uh, in among the Métis people in Alberta has been affected by many factors related with uh, systemic racism and um, all the unfortunate byproducts of uh, colonialism have inflicted on Métis health. Uh, so I'm working with the Métis Nation in these projects and, um, and also looking at how early exposures in early childhood uh, among Métis uh, children uh, have an impact on longitudinal health, long-term health. So a couple of projects with them. Um, I also... Um, work on um, uh, using GIS methods to understand what are the relationships between characteristics of the social and physical environments and perinatal and uh, early childhood health. So those are kind of the topics in, in which uh, some of my projects are, are moving forward. This is certainly really important work, and Demeter is a very clever name for your research lab, too. Thank you. <laughs> Dr. Espina, we, we sort of left off at your master's uh, degree at Alberta, mm -hmm. and I was hoping you could just tell us a little bit more about how that transformed into a PhD. Mm -hmm. Okay, so uh, my PhD um, dissertation had nothing to do with my master's, uh, and it started a collaboration with the Métis Nation of Alberta. Um, this is a collaboration that has been um, sustained and nurtured uh, for almost um, 13 years now. And I started my, my PhD. Um, so um, I believe at the time working in in a good way, the, and when I say a good way, I say this with an intention uh, uh, in terms of how we should collaborate with indigenous communities around health research that is important to them. Uh, in those times, was not a, a perceived as an important thing to do as much as it is now. But I, I, I would say that my experience doing that work at that time um, also helped me to, to, to do better. And from the very, very beginning of, of my career in terms of how you collaborate uh, as, a, as a settler, as an ally with indigenous people. So the topic of my dissertation uh, that was supported by the Métis Nation of Alberta was uh, evaluating um, the epidemiology and health services outcomes uh, uh, about chronic obstructive pulmonary disease 
uh, in the three indigenous groups of uh, First Nations, Métis and Inuit. So this was a work that was supported by the Métis Nation of Alberta and conducted in collaboration with them. So what is important about my dissertation uh, is, well, highlighting the, the differences uh, in, the, in the outcomes of uh, COPD uh, across the three indigenous groups. But also the value is that it was probably the, the one of the first times in which uh, this data was not presented as indigenous versus non-indigenous, but it was kind of a very specific portrait for each of the indigenous groups and acknowledging that you cannot use a pan-indigenous approach to describe uh, health of indigenous people um, in what we call Canada now that each group have different needs and within each group also you have uh, many communities and cultures. Uh, so using an approach that is indigenous versus non-indigenous causes so, so many problems. And I believe my thesis trying to understand what are the differences um, across the three groups in terms of uh, the emergency visits for chronic obstructive coronary, coronary disease um, ambulatory care, hospitalizations, and the prevalence of the condition in the three uh, indigenous groups was a big addition to, to this body of evidence. And also was also a good way to start uh, my collaboration with them after I got my academic appointment at the University of Alberta. Um, I told them, hey, I got this uh, faculty position after I did my postdoctoral fellowship at Alberta Health Services. So I, I, I'm one of those rarities of people that gets their training, all their training in the same institution. Um, that's not very common in, in, in academia, but I feel that I am a good example that it might happen, right? So... Um, uh, so when I started my position at the U of A, uh, I let them know and they say, hey, uh, do you have an interest in keeping collaborating with us? And that's, you know, we have continued this relationship of trust uh, over time that I'm very proud and, and humbled to, to be able to, to keep working with them. So, yeah, that's a little bit of my PhD uh, trajectory. Your work is really important, and I like that it also addresses that no culture is a monolith, and uh -huh. community engagement is super important. Absolutely. What would you say stands out to you the most about working in Alberta? Well, uh, I, I have to say I loved my, my time at the University of Alberta for many reasons. First of all, it's, my, it's, it's, it's home to me in, in many ways. I got train at the University of Alberta. I understand the institution quite well. Um, I had wonderful colleagues in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology, which is the, the department where I got my first position. I got my support for a Canada research chair by a, the faculty, and that was kind of a, a an acknowledgement of the hard work that I was conducting and, and a recognition of the importance of the research that I was conducting. So I always felt very, very valued by by the university and by the faculty, amazing colleagues. Um, something that I really, really appreciate about the University of Alberta is the Women and Children's Health Research Institute. 
um, and it's probably one of the things that I I can say I miss the most about Alberta. Um, this is an institute that brings together 400 researchers uh, from all paths of science, you name it, that have an interest in, in, in women and children's health. So it's a powerhouse in terms of the evidence that can be built to improve outcomes in, in women and, uh, and, and children in Alberta and across Canada. Um, so I was an active member of the institute. I, wa- I received funding to do research uh, as a initiation startup grant as a new investig- new career investigator, and I I think that was fundamental to bring my career, you know, into a into a really really nice uh, level of um, performance and, and excellence, I would say. Not very humbly, but <laughs> um, so the institute had different activities. They had a research day with trainees um, presenting, you know, research about women and children's health issues. I was an active reviewer for abstracts. Um, they had studentships uh, for, you know, trainees at undergrad and grad levels and postdoctoral levels to do research in this field. So, to me, I mean, I cannot thank enough the support of the institute in my career and I hope I can see here uh, at Queens and in Ontario something similar because I believe we don't have an institute like that in in the province so um, I'm just putting the seed there for somebody to pick up hopefully that seed comes to fruition as well It sounds like you've had a lot of amazing experiences in Alberta, and we at Queen's University are truly honored to have you here with us as well. What motivated you to come to Queen's University? Um, I think um, it's kind of funny because I said this in my letter when I apply, and I said in the interviews, and I didn't say just to brag and get the job. It's because I truly, truly believe in, in what I said is... I, I don't think of any university across Canada that has uh, a greatest commitment with equity, diversity, and inclusion than Queens. I can say that anywhere. It has, you know, the actions to speak for itself. It's not only left in, you know, uh, talk and talk. Uh, I did my research when I was applying to, to come to Queens. Uh, and uh, this university is signatory of many, many important initiatives across Canada and worldwide to um, to eliminate racism in education, in the healthcare system, in in our society. Um, it has the clearest commitment with the uh, actions for the Truth and Reconciliation uh, Commission. Uh, the fact that. Um, uh, the Honorable Morris Sinclair, I mean, is is an honor that he is a chancellor of the university. To me, that speaks volume also of that commitment. Um, so as a researcher and a scientist and educator in topics that are related with health inequalities, is very important for me that the institution in which I work has a real commitment with these issues. And of course, on a personal level, um, it's, very, it's less cold here. 
Mar- marginally so. <laughs> marginally so. It's less cold here. And uh, and I have to say, I, I'm really enjoying the taking the train and uh, the connection between Toronto and Ottawa and Montreal. Uh, the pleasure of taking the train is, is something unique. Uh, the fact that um, the network with other universities, other institutions in Ontario is very important. It's, it's certainly great to hear you speak so positively of your experience here at Queen's, Dr. Espina. I'm curious to hear how, um, since you've moved to Queen's, mm-hmm. maybe your research questions and trajectory has changed. Have there been any changes to the sort of work you want to do? I and I would say no on a big uh, picture. My work is still in the area of maternal and perinatal health, and I have to say I have great colleagues here at Queen's that actually were very instrumental and, and important in my decision to come here, like uh, uh, Dr. Graham Smith, who is the chair of the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology, and Dr. Maria Velas, who is a, a colleague, a adjunct in the department, and also Professor Obi and Gaini, and many other colleagues. So maternal and prenatal and early childhood are still, uh, you know, in my um, priority from my research point of view, and definitely I will continue doing research in health inequalities. The thing is that I might um, I might use different approaches, methodological approaches to do uh, this type of work. Um, I want to expand on different methodologies to, to address issues uh, about how we study intersectionality uh, from a methodological point of view. Um, and also how how we can incorporate data about the physical environments, uh, and that the reason for that is because the proximity to water made me think about the importance of the blue spaces on health, uh, and the green spaces on health, uh, and. Uh, I feel that myself. I feel healthier being closer to the lake. I want to also get a little bit of um, knowledge and evidence about the relationship between those physical aspects of the environment and health outcomes uh, during pregnancy and postpartum and also in children in early life. So those are going to be probably, you know, central in my future research over the next couple of years. I agree that space is very important mm-hmm. when considering health as well. Yeah. And I also truly appreciate blue space. And I feel that we could also see more research on the health effects of having more blue spaces as well. Yep. You mentioned that you enjoy the connections between Kingston and various other cities like Ottawa and Montreal. And it sounds like you've done a lot of traveling, too. So, for example, you were a visiting fellow in the Ibero-American Cochrane Center, correct? Yes, yes. Would you be able to share more about your experiences there? Of course, yes. I, I... I went to Barcelona to the Hospital San Pau. That's the name of the institution that hosts the Ibero-American Cochrane Center. Actually, I would say very early in my career, even before I did my master, I went to uh, Barcelona to to do this training. And that training was about how to conduct systematic reviews. So I spent... um, about uh, a year living in Barcelona and uh, um, 
working um, in this fellowship at the Ibero-American Cochrane Center on how to conduct systematic reviews. And the topic of my systematic review was about the, I re still remember, the effectiveness of atomoxetine for uh, ADHD in children. So just, you know, the very, very first clinical trials about atomoxetine uh, were, um, you know, evaluated in that systematic review. And living in Barcelona, well, where where do I start? <laughs> it's amazing. It's a, it was a fantastic experience. Uh, uh, Catalonia and Barcelona is uh, they have a very very special special place in in my heart. Um, it's a different experience. I mean, and you always hear from Barcelona as a place to visit, and has always many many tourists. But your perspective when you live there is very different. Uh, and of course, you see, you know, you have a different set of eyes than when you go as a tourist. But I love it. I fantastic the food, the people, the the sea is wonderful. So I'm just curious um, for our audience who isn't just comprised of those with academic backgrounds, but the public at large. Uh, what recommendations do you have for our listeners to maybe become more aware of inequities? that come with many diseases and health conditions? So I, I think uh, uh, a good beginning of that is that we all should acknowledge as citizens that we don't have the same privileges, right? They, and, and, and making that own exercise of where do we sit in our society and, and trying to understand that we are not all in the same boat and we're not all in the same page because our personal circumstances are different, those things impact uh, health and those things impact access of people to, to health. Um, I, I remember at the very beginning of this pandemic, somebody was saying, oh, we are all in the same boat. No, we were not. Some of them were in a transatlantic and, uh, you know, in one of those crews that go to the Bahamas or whatever. And other people were in little, in small canoes um, through this uh, pandemic. Um, just having the awareness that that's the way we live and that we need to uh, bridge those gaps and those inequalities is, is an important step. And that implies keeping in mind that we have a public health system, healthcare system, that ideally we all have access to it, right? So if you're rich, if you're poor, um, but for some reason still we see the differences in, in, in access. We see that not everybody has the same opportunity, that we need to improve uh, access to care and uh, to remote communities, for example, or there are some... Um, groups in our society that have reluctance to go to the uh, and have any contact with the healthcare system because they have been so mistreated in the past that they want nothing to do with the healthcare system. We need to handle those issues about systemic racism and discrimination that have been present, unfortunately, in the healthcare system as it, probably in other systems in our society as well. So we need to be aware that we are all, we should be all on the same boat, but in the same boat of being advocates uh, in whatever position we have in society 
to try to make our societies a little bit more fair and just and and inclusive and tolerant to everybody and health and research have an important role to do that so support research in inequities this is very important for us to to move forward as a society that's a very powerful message and one that i think our listeners can really take away from this podcast as well in what ways specifically would you say that epidemiology and public health overall can help to address these inequities so that way we're not all on different boats the thing is, epidemiology can provide the evidence, right? We have the the tools to to, and especially you know, descriptive epidemiology and and also inferential epidemiology can help to to for the people to understand what are the associations across these factors, how how pervasive the problems are. So it gives an idea of the burden of the problem. It gives an idea of what groups in our society are more uh, at a higher risk of having uh, these problems or, or having these gaps in access to healthcare or gaps in, in health status. So I would say that even though epidemiology is a, is a scientific discipline, the results, the evidence that is produced is used for making decisions. And uh, that's the power and that's a little bit the advocacy role that epidemiology can play when scientific evidence is used to, to, to make rational decisions, to make informed decisions uh, about, you know, how resources are located, um, how, how to support certain groups in our society. Um, so, yeah, I would say that it has a very, very important role. Um, of course, I'm talking epidemiology as a researcher, right? But uh, I know in, in our programs are professional degrees of people that do their master's in public health, and they, they might not be the producers of evidence eh, because they are not researchers. That's not what the training is about. But as, as people working in public health and officers in healthcare, eh, the fact that these individuals have a really w good grasp about what good evidence is, uh, that is good to support any decisions that they will have to make into the healthcare system or government or whatever organization they work that is not only related with a, an academic institution like Queens or any other in which you know we teach and we also do research. So, Dr. Espina, you would know this very well, having um, a lot of experience with systematic reviews. Research takes a long time. Mm -hmm. Finding the answers we want takes a really long time. So assuming you had unlimited resources, what public health question would you want to investigate? I think uh, living in Kingston, Kingston is a very special place. It has uh, a mix of many of the places in which I have lived before. It's a small community, relatively small. Um, it's diverse in its own ways. It's non-diverse in other ways, which is also important for many of the research questions about inequalities that I deal with. But um, I would like to, to if I have all the 
resources and support, I would like to establish uh, a cohort here, like uh, a study cohort of uh, starting from uh, preconception uh, and then, you know, following up uh, these uh, families uh, over time um, and uh, looking at uh, outcomes uh, in the families um, and in the children, especially over time. So making this longitudinal evaluation, I think a cohort of that caliber will help us to also understand um, how, you know, the, the place we live has also an influence on health. Something that I would like, and I, I think it probably would be unique about this cohort compared to, you know, these cohorts have been conducted in, in many places. Uh, but uh, something and a criticism that has been posed to many cohorts across Canada is that they are not particularly diverse. Uh, there's always certain type of people that uh, are recruited into these cohorts. And usually, unfortunately, in many cases are people that probably don't need that research as much as others. I would like to make that uh, cohort diverse in terms of uh, socioeconomic opportunities, in terms of um, ethnicity, um, in terms of education uh, attainment. So it's, uh, and that will also help us to understand a little bit more what are the relationships between the social exposures and uh, the health outcomes. Sometimes I feel that relationship, there's kind of a black box in between that, and we have epidemiological research saying that. Um, there are worse outcomes in, you know, low-income families compared to high-income families, and then those dividers across, you know, society. But then the 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 big question, the pot question, is okay, how how that happens? What is the trajectory? What are the pathways in which something that is so distant socially it gets under the skin? And I'm using that terminology on purpose. Um, in, in science, we call it like biological embodiment um, and how those factors that are social kind of get embedded under the skin to produce changes in health outcomes that are related with the way our bodies work. I think that was an amazing answer and that is very important research too. And hopefully we'll be able to see a more diverse cohort coming soon in the future as well. I hope so. What advice would you give to students to help manage a better work-life balance? Something that I always tried to do was to uh, have, to, as much as possible, have the weekends uh, for myself to do whatever I wanted to do. That implied some sacrifices when I was doing the other activities. And uh, I, this I late discovered that I was not checking on uh, social media all the time because it was very distractive. It, uh, so I, I, sometimes I, I, I noticed, like, you know, I was working and then I had to go to Twitter and Facebook and uh, all these things. But no, I mean, I tried to do that later during the day so it doesn't interfere. When I'm working on what I'm working, I'm completely very, very focused on what I'm doing, right? That kind of approach helped me 
to to prioritize what is important and and being very very protective of my time during the weekends so i'm probably one of the few academics i have to say that uh, can say that work on weekends unless it's absolutely necessary and yes there are some times in which uh, you know i have to do it but as much as i can i try to protect my time over the weekends to to give time to the people that is important to me uh, to my dog uh, but also to my brain i it's important to have breaks here and there and the importance of those breaks on you know on on your stamina and your um, possibilities to keep up with what you're doing are very very important so no matter what your circumstances are and sometimes it's hard when you're trying to feel, you know, so many roles in life, like uh, as a as a mother, as a as a daughter or son, eh, or just because you know you 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 have a full time job. I mean, those are things that are a reality for many of us, eh, but shouldn't be a reason to keep a disbalance in in life. Make time for yourself. Make time for your brain. At least, you know, keep at least one day of the weekend in which you don't open a book, which you don't read an article and do something fun and and actually get connected with other people that have nothing to do with science. That's also very, very healthy as well, I would say. That's a really good strategy and something that hopefully a lot of us here at Queen's University would be able to implement in our lives, too. To accomplish this work-life balance for yourself, what does a typical workday look like for you? So it depends on the on on the day. So I I teach Epi uh, eight oh one on uh, Mondays and uh, and Wednesdays. So I usually I I wake up and I I walk my dog and I come here and start you know preparing whatever I need to prepare for the class. Um, I teach uh, the class and then after until 11.20, then probably for the next hour or so, I meet sometimes with some of the students after class if they need me to meet with them. Uh, I spend time, unfortunately, a lot of time replying to emails. Uh, that's uh, that's a lot of emails from you know everybody that want a little bit of you during the day, um, and then uh, it depends. I mean, I can uh, prepare to spend my time preparing you know class for the next uh, Wednesday. Um, I meet with some trainees that I still have from the University of Alberta to check on their progress on on the research. I I work on the manuscripts that I'm preparing for publication. Um, I have meetings uh, for either because I have to chair a defense or I have meetings with my colleagues. So that's kind of the 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 way my regular days uh, look like. Um, I wish I had more time to sit down and read uh, papers. Um, but uh, and I do, but I also mix a little bit of time at the end of the day to go to Twitter, and uh, I use Twitter a lot uh, for academic purposes. 
Um, and I have learned so many things from, you know, Twitter. I have actually met uh, wonderful colleagues with whom I have published to, after, you know, meeting them on Twitter. So I am a Twitter user and uh, I, how do you say now you create content for Twitter? <laughs> but I, I, I spend some time also to check in on, on social media, but also from an academic point of view very you know great ideas you get for for research so yeah my 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 life revolves about you know teaching um supervising students uh and also you know writing grants and writing papers that's pretty much i would say what and meetings and emails <laughs> that's a little bit of everything but a very good balance I love that you bring up the useful aspects of social media and the more, um, shall we say, more positive aspects of social media, because I think those sometimes go disregarded by the population at large. And it's always interesting to see how different professionals do use um, outlets like Twitter to do their work and to connect with other professionals. Mm -hmm. I have uh, one last question for you, Dr. Espina. And it's a question that we make an effort to ask every guest on the show, or at least some variation of on the show. And so I, I wonder, what do you think is the most common misunderstanding the average person has about your work and about epidemiology in general? Mm -hmm. So the funny answer to that is that uh, it has to do with the skin, and I don't know why epidermics and epidermiology or something like that is uh i mean it's uh it's the first you know reaction of people that have nothing to do used to have now with the covid-19 pandemic i think things have changed a little bit and everybody um understand a little bit more about what epidemiology does so with that um I believe a common misunderstanding is that epidemiology only has to do with epidemics, which is not true. And, and uh, epidemiology has to do, uh, and another misunderstanding is that epidemiology has to do only with diseases. And that's not true either. It, it is related to, you know, to health and well-being and uh, events in healthcare. So, um is not necessarily linked with epidemics. It's not only necessarily linked with infectious diseases. Uh, it it provides, as I said, a, a, a set of ammunition of uh, methods to understand questions about health and associations with you know uh, all kind of variables in our physical, social, uh, individual environments. So um, it might be related with wellness, positive outcomes as well. It's not always related with disease uh, and it's not always related with infections. It can be related with chronic conditions. So I think those are kind of common misunderstandings. Uh, so ep epidemiology for the you know larger audience is not only about COVID-19 or outbreaks, uh, but it has to, you know, it gives a little bit of tools to 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 analyze how frequent, you know, uh, certain health outcomes are in 
in gr groups in our society and what are the fact the role of certain factors to 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 create these outcomes so i think that's a sometimes a big misunderstanding right Oh, certainly. And those are misunderstandings that I think really came to light with the COVID-19 pandemic. Mm -hmm. And so I, I think that's why it's such a valuable question to ask mm -hmm. someone like yourself. And I'm curious, too, uh, how has the COVID-19 pandemic maybe changed friends and family's perception of your work? Yes, I, I, I believe there is a new term coined that the COVID-19 is a syndemic and it's not a pandemic. And syndemic means uh, that is a is a situation in which the social factors have a very very strong influence on how we're navigating this pandemic situation. So I believe uh, being aware of that reality is also important for for families. Um, uh, and for the general public to know that the way we are navigating this pandemic is not only depending on the vaccines, uh, but also in you know the kind of things that we can do to to reduce the spread of of the disease. So, Doctor Espina, you mentioned your dog a few times. Could you tell us more about Frodo? Of course, Frodo Baggins Ospina is the light of my eyes. Uh, he's a golden retriever, and he's 10 months old. Uh, so we were born both in January, which is interesting. So he was born, he's an Alberta boy. Uh, he was born in uh, Barrie, Alberta. It's a rural area. And uh, we have been together since February. And he has been... You know, he's an amazing dog. He crossed Canada with me by driving when he was uh, a pup. And uh, I don't think I have ever had a most fun co-pilot than, than Frodo. He just sat in the trunk very nicely. He, wa he loved the trip as much as I, uh, as I, as I did. Um, so I, I'm still... So he went for training for the last six weeks to be a good boy because he was being a little bit mischievous but now he's back home so he's uh, you know he's a good boy i have to say now i hope i can bring him this time to you know for the students in in the apartment to meet him in person very very soon i know you guys have seen i know i talk about him all the time <laughs> i love my dog Alfredo sounds precious, and I think a lot of the students in the department would really appreciate getting to meet him as well. Absolutely. I'll, I'll, I'll make sure that he comes before the, the term is over. All right. And my sort of fun question to finish off this episode is, uh, Dr. Espina, you're obviously new to the Kingston community, and I'm just curious if you found any particular spots or restaurants that uh, have been really special to you and, and you'd like to share with everyone? Sure. So I, so I have the several, I would say. Uh, so I'm absolutely in love with the waterfront. I, I love the Ontario Park. I used to live in the Portsmouth area, and uh, it was so charming. 
they have a, a bakery in the in the just a, a, around the corner of um, Young Street and King. You go a little bit further to the waterfront, but uh, it's a tiny, tiny bakery uh, shop uh, in that area, close to the tavern. It's the best, best uh, bakery stuff that I have found in in Kingston and that area the Ontario Park is absolutely wonderful for walks with Frodo um, I really enjoy that area the waterfront in front of our university is lovely to take walks during midday I I invite everybody that have you know have, have had in a, a hard time to just go to the waterfront front and benefit from from the blue space and the wonderful lake that we have here. Um, and there is a, a super cute cafe. Well, it's Juniper Cafe in the behind the TED Center. Uh, I think that's so far my favorite spot here. Um, because the food is delicious. It's a really nice place to hang with friends. It's not super expensive. Um, and you just sit there and chat and meet with your friends and watch the beautiful lake. So it's, it's, it's like every time I go there, I'm like, okay, I'm so lucky to live here. And Dr. Espina, we're so thankful that you did decide to come to Kingston and we're Thank glad you. that uh, you're enjoying it here as well it truly is a beautiful community we have here and I would like to thank you for uh, coming to discuss epidemiology with us today it's been an absolute pleasure getting yeah, to know you better you. getting to know your work but also your personal journey in, in getting to Kingston and yeah thank you so much Thank you for joining us today, Dr. Espina. I really appreciated hearing more about the work that you did. You have an amazing career trajectory, so I got to hear about so many different experiences that I probably wouldn't hear in class and that I wouldn't fully get the scope of reading your research papers, for example. So it was an absolute pleasure getting to learn more about you as well. Thank you. Thank you both for inviting me and for for those students that are listening to the podcast. If you want to know a little bit more about my research and if you have an interest in research on maternal, perinatal and early childhood health, just come stop by my office. I always tell everybody I have a sp an espresso machine in my office. It's true. And come for coffee and, and chat. Thank you. I'll be sure to take you up on that offer soon. <laughs> Join us next time for episode three, where we'll learn more about what it means to work in public health and discuss even more surprising ways that current events around us affect our health.